0: Welcome to our podcast, which we call Busting Addiction and the Myths That Surround It. This podcast is sponsored by Safe House Rehab Thailand, where we offer clients a life-changing experience in the perfect environment for recovery. And it's closer than you think. Just visit safehouserehab.com to learn more. My name is Bruno Jay, and here's why I created this podcast. It's getting crazier and more deadly than we could have ever imagined just 10 years ago with opioids and now fentanyl, which is a 100 times more potent than heroin. This stuff is killing 130 Americans every day, and the fentanyl wave is crashing the shores of other nations as well. I've spoken at many open recovery meetings, and I can't tell you how many women, yes, women, have come up to me and expressed their hurt and desperation about their son's heroin addiction. So it's usually a mother or wife who's going nuts, and a male addict in his 20s to 40s whose disease is causing the chaos in the family, whether the addict or alcoholic is living under the same roof or not. It could be heroin, fentanyl, alcohol, cocaine, speed, or any combination of bad stuff. Easy and relatively cheap to get these days, and the long-term price is quite another matter, as you all know. A while ago... I also noticed that there wasn't another podcast dedicated solely to talking to that one super important group without whom addicts would never make it into treatment, the people who love the addict. I also noticed that there were a lot of myths surrounding the disease of addiction, and I realized then that I had the ammo to blow up some of these myths so that nothing but the truth survived. If you love an addict or alcoholic and you feel like your loved one is sucking the oxygen out of your life, then this podcast is for you. If your loved one is driving you crazy and stealing your money, your peace of mind, and your sanity, this podcast is for you. And if you're feeling rage and shame and your self-esteem has been flushed down the tubes, this podcast is for you too. I am the former spouse of an alcoholic, the father of an addict, and a former drug-addicted alcoholic (laughs) maniac, a true menace to society, now clean and sober for 26 years. So I think I know what I'm talking about, and I'm here to share everything I know and medical science has learned about addiction over the past quarter century. So let's blow up some of the myths surrounding addicts and addiction and speak the truth. Your loved one's story does not have to end in disaster. For most family members, there's hope. There is always hope. Let's start with our first episode, which we call Don't Quit Trying to Quit, which smashes the myth that relapses shouldn't happen in a, quote, normal recovery. Did you know that 90% or more of all addicts and alcoholics who are clean and sober for the long haul have had at least one relapse along the way? That many had more than five relapses before they got serious about recovery. And I know a couple of guys that had 10 or 11 relapses before they got it right. All of that should tell you three important things. First, relapses are common. They're characteristic of addictive disease. So join the club. You're not alone if that's any comfort. Do not get overly discouraged, point number two, because at least your loved one addict is giving it a try, and this time it might stick. Thirdly, do not let too much time pass with the addict out there using and abusing. Since the sooner someone comes back, comes back into treatment, the better the likelihood of correcting what they did and the less damage they can do. You don't want too many moons to pass before your loved one tries again. It's really about the power of now. It's always today. It's a powerful, simple, yet radical concept. What the power of now teaches us is that we don't have to stay sober forever if we stay sober today. And that's what I tell the guys that I work with. They go, why is that? I go, you know why? Because it's always today. You don't have to carry the burden of the future or live in the future. Because if you do, and that's the way alcoholics and addicts often do, is they anticipate the worst is going to happen, so they're in a state of extreme anxiety at all times. And so and you know, how do you relieve that state of extreme anxiety? You do drugs or you drink alcohol, you do both. This is a cunning, baffling, and powerful disease. Most addicts who have achieved long-lasting recovery have made many attempts before they got it right, as we saw. And at some point, those who do succeed make the decision to look more closely at what they should have done or haven't done and try to answer the following questions surrounding what they can do differently this time, right? These are the questions. Am I willing to admit that I am powerless over this disease, totally powerless over this disease, and that... I've tried to control it on my own, and I couldn't. Will I be really honest this time? Will I be willing to surrender my old ways of thinking? There's a saying in recovery that says there is victory and surrender, but that doesn't really uh, stick until you do it, and then you understand what it is that you've done. You've surrendered your old ways of thinking and acting, but first you surrender your old ways of thinking. Will I be willing to go to any length to get and stay clean and sober? That's a critical question. When the addict says yes in response to these questions, the odds of his successful recovery go way up. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned the scary God word, which puts off a lot of addicts as they enter treatment. You know, We'll get back to that one later. So to learn more, visit safehouserehabthailand.com where the chance of true recovery is closer than you think or email us at info at we'll answer. We mean answer any question you might have about navigating your way through this phase of your life. Okay, you're the mother, you're the sister, brother, daughter, son of an active a- alcoholic or addict. And you've undoubtedly wondered how he could do what he does. How he could so be, how he could he be so thoughtless about breaking his promise to attend his own son's birthday party? how he could embarrass his family with yet another arrest for driving drunk? How our advice goes in one ear and out the other without so much as acknowledging that what we say what we say out of love, that we say what we say out of love, or do what we do out of love, if and here's a quote, and this, we've heard this. If he really loved me, he wouldn't do the horrible things he does, say the awful things he says, or blame me for his failures in life. If he really loved me, he wouldn't do any of these things. And that's what people think. We honestly hope one day you'll come to realize that whether he loves you or not, he or she loves you or not, has nothing to do with it. And that all of the things you've been doing to try to control his drinking or using are well-intentioned but they're woefully misguided. The fact is, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. That's kind of a heartless truth. But then addiction is a heartless disorder, isn't it? Here's an example of how manipulative addicts can be, and unless you're wise to it, it'll get you every time. See if this one sounds familiar. Keeping you off balance is a favorite game for the alcoholic or addict. Addicts play the blame game to deflect unwanted attention to the problems they're using as causing themselves and their families. They might say, well, if you didn't work all those crazy hours, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be having these problems. So while we are busy defending ourselves from a ridiculous and confusing charge, the addict makes his getaway. Wow, I never thought that way before we hear some, some parents say This insight we just quoted comes from Jeff and Deborah J. No Relation to Me, authors of a well-regarded book on addiction and intervention called Love First, A Family's Guide to Intervention. Get the book, and if you don't actually organize an intervention, it's a a very excellent um, view, a clear view into the mind of an alcoholic. It will really help you understand what your loved one is doing. And if you need someone to talk to, someone who's knowledgeable and caring, or a go-to person, just email us at info at or go to our website, safehouserehab.com. We will, we're here to help, really. You need to be better informed on how addicts actually think and what causes them to stay stuck in their disease. You need to make an informed decision on what your options are and what to do next example perhaps you and your loved one have debated which way to turn one day he wants to go into treatment the next day changes his mind or he goes back out there it drives you crazy doesn't it we've seen this addictive disease ravage families for decades we've also witnessed the very best of what a strong recovery program can do we've seen hopeless men and women reclaim their lives and experience the true meaning of love not love as an addiction or as a means of manipulation, but as a selfless state of being and acting. So, what happens too is that people get caught up in uh, in this myth, the myth that says um, the only way that an addict is going to help is if he hits bottom first. So, it's a myth. It says an addict or alcoholic has to hit their own bottom before, they can really, before they're ready to recover, and there's nothing much you can do about it. This myth is loaded with misconception. It's a barrier to taking action. is the cause of needless suffering. Have you heard this one? I don't know much about this problem, but one thing I know for sure is that you can't help an addict or alcoholic until he's ready for help. This is the most unchallenged myth about addiction and the one that stops us from responding to a deadly and destructive disease. This is a load of BS. We're again quoting Jeff and Deborah J., experts on addiction and authors of a well-recorded book called Love First, a Family's Guide to Intervention. This idea that an addict has to hit bottom first before he's ready to accept help is a lie. It leaves us standing on the sidelines while addiction runs through our families like a freight train. This myth that you can't help an addict until he's ready has us silently thinking, therefore there's nothing you or I or anybody can do about this problem, which is the biggest lie of all. It's blatantly not true. But when we challenge this myth with this question, if an addict won't accept help until he's ready, what will it take to get them ready? When we think this way, we completely change the way we approach the problem. We smash this dangerous myth to smithereens. It feels pretty good, doesn't it? Because it gives you more hope. Here's another one. It's well known that addicts who get help on their own do so not because they see the light, but because they feel the heat. If something comes along that shakes them up so much that they would rather accept help than continue drinking and drugging, we call that shake-up an intervention. An intervention, when it's done right, most or not, by the way, raises the bottom, saving perhaps years of misery that it might otherwise have taken before you felt the heat enough to see the, seek the help he needs. Sadly, many, if not most, addicts and alcoholics never make it into recovery. It doesn't have to be that way, not at all, not on your life. Can I tell you my story about my intervention? So back in... Uh, I had been drinking and doing drugs for about 20-some-odd years, and back in the day, back in 1992, I had just arrived in a Midwestern city in 1990 from 10 years of of uh, chaotic and indulgent uh, behavior and a high-level job in, in New York City where I had a corner office on the 26th floor, of 1515 Broadway, no big deal, man. It was just... I was on the rise. I was in my very early 30s back in the day. So then I got fired from that job. I hit the street and I end up getting recruited to another job in a in Midwestern city. So I get there and it's now 1992 and things are starting to unravel yet again at this job. And one day I'm in my office and uh, the HR director comes in and says, uh, Bruno... Bruno J, I said, "Yes, sir. how you doing?" He says, "Do you have time for a cup of coffee across the street?" I said, "Sure, and man, I thought, man, they know something's going on. You never get asked for to get, you know to go for a coffee across the street when people could just sit down in your office or conference room or whatever and just have a conversation. So I knew this was different. this was, this was an uh "oh moment." So we go to the coffee shop across the street, and there's the HR director and the president of the company. Um, good guy. They're good guys. They treated me right. Um, he said, uh, the HR director, Larry, he says, uh, um, Bruno, do you, do you think you have a drinking problem? And, you know, alcoholics and addicts are pretty slick. We go, yeah, it's, it's possible I have a drinking problem. Well, no kidding, I had a drinking problem. So why do you think they came to me with that, you know, suspicion that I had a drinking problem? What I used to do is get drunk and get on the phone and call people at 10 o'clock at night about nothing. I wasn't hostile. I would just waste their time and get them. It's like it's Saturday night know. I'm calling somebody at 10 o'clock. Crazy stuff. So um, I did go see a psychiatrist. I went to a few recovery meetings. I stopped drinking. This was in mid... Yeah, mid-92. But I thought it was okay to smoke pot. What the hell? What was I thinking? You know, one day I said, you know, it's coming Christmas time. I think I'll have myself a vodka double. Well, I didn't just have a vodka double after work. I had two more. So that's six drinks. You know, go home, buzz, buy a bottle of wine, smoke some more dope, you know, and uh, take some, some uh Opiates, so i could so i could sleep and this this went on over and over and over again before i know it i said well i'm drinking you know on the weekends at this point and i said might as well start drinking every day since i'm drinking that's the logic of an alcoholic for you it took another you know didn't take long for me to slide right up to the gates of hell when i went to my psychiatrist and i said you know what i i just i'm just got all kinds of problems you know ocd and Depression, and I mean, I, you know, all kinds of weird things going on. Associated dissociative personality disorder, whatever. So one day, she says, uh, "Bruno, I'm gonna uh, prescribe a med for you. Maybe it'll relieve your OCD." Because I had, you know, alcohol and drugs were. I didn't understand the impact they were having on me. I thought I just, I was just going crazy. So I took the meds. Came back next Friday talked to my psychiatrist, and she said, well, how are you doing with the meds? I, I said, I think my head's going to explode. I hate them. She said, you're not drinking, are you? I said, of course I'm drinking. I could see the light go on in her eyes. She said, you know what? You better check yourself in before you check yourself out. And that same week where I disclosed for the first time what I was really doing, which was drinking my brains out every night and all weekend long and staying high, you know, and then taking opiates that took codeine so that I could sleep. That was the first time I admitted to her. That same week I got my ass fired for being completely useless. And these guys are good guys. Up until that moment in time, you know, before I got fired, if you turned to me and said, you know, I think you got a problem, I would have said, screw you. I would say, F you. I'm, I'm working. I'm making lots of money. But once they took that job away, I no longer had any evidence that I was sane. And that's my story. I bottomed out. I bottomed out to the point where I was just an absolute wreck. I went into treatment for nine days, which is all my uh, insurance could afford, at that point. But then I went into aftercare for eighteen months. That's how badly I needed it. That's how badly damaged I was. You know, I think back to those days as I think I escaped with my life. And which gives me, at least me, and I've heard this around, you know, the, uh, the gift of desperation. I was so desperate to get better because I had no excuses for becoming the person I would become. I had great parents. <laughs> I had a really nice education. But what I understood about me was that I was an infantile personality, didn't want to be held accountable for anything. And so I didn't want to be held accountable for, you know, the damage that I had done or the fact that I was drinking and there were consequences to that. Doesn't have to be that way, not at all, not on your life. What you may need more than ever at this point in your life is to make an informed decision about what to do next based on reality not based on myth. So that's where we come in. That's what we're all about, helping you make enlightened choices for yourself and for your loved one, helping you to understand there is a vast gulf gulf between love and enabling. Yeah, you love the addict, but you love that addict better by not loaning her money and not making excuses for absences and not taking over responsibilities that belong to her. When you enable a person, you deny your loved one the learning that comes with experiencing consequences. This is about feeling the heat of repetitive behavior that harms the addict and others in her in own life and about growing up. Sad truth, though, is there are exceptions to this no-enabling rule. One of them is taking care of the active addict's children, whom she would otherwise be perfectly capable of taking care of them herself. But what are the heartbreaking choices now? Believe it or not, this sort of thing happens more often than you think. Grandparents becoming parents to their own grandchildren is an unfair heartache that no one should have to bear. Believe it or not, mother's heart is torn too because this disease is way more powerful than the love for your for her children. That's an immense amount of power, right? So... Here's an insight into the mind of an addict who sees a family member as the obstacle to what he wants, and that is to get high. Therefore, you, not his disease, are the problem. This is a radical thought, don't you think? fact is, for the active addict, drugs are not the problem. They are the solution. And I used to feel that way, too. So while we talk about abusive drugs as the problem, he's talking about you as the problem, because you're in the way, you're an obstacle to attaining his goal, to get and stay high. Have you ever experienced something like this? The addict is telling you a completely plausible story of why he needs an extra 500 bucks from you so that he can repair the front end of his car, and he looks you in the eye, exuding love and innocence, and later you learn that he used the money to do what? Buy cocaine. This happens every day of the week. Fact is, the addiction has taken over the addict's power of choice. It's sabotaged his decision-making process and has him violating every value that he used to hold dear. His self-esteem is shot. He puts up a defiant front, yet he feels like a total loser. He thinks you can see right through him. He lies to make himself look better. He lies even when he doesn't need to lie. He lies to make himself look normal because what other people think of him is one of the most important things in his life. So what did we learn in this episode? We learned that relapses are common. So don't get too discouraged or freaked out if your loved one goes back out there. Just get him or her to get back in in from the storm as soon as possible. Second thing is... Addicts play the deflection game, but don't fall for it. You didn't cause the addiction, you really can't control it, and even when you think you can, and you sure as heck can't cure it. Surrender to that truth with all your heart. It's the only way for you. Thirdly, the addict doesn't see addiction as a problem, he sees you as the problem. And drugs and alcohol as the solution. You only get in the way, that's why you are the problem. This is crazy but true, and finally... I think it's probably the most important one here. The idea that an addict will only accept help when he hits bottom is a terrible idea and has you standing by while the addiction runs through your family like a freight train. The real question is, what will it take them to get ready? It's not about the addict seeing the light. It's about the addict feeling the heat. The Busting Addiction and the Myths that surround it podcast is brought to you by the caring professionals at Safehouse Rehab Thailand, who offer clients a life-changing experience in the perfect environment for recovery. Just ask us any question, we mean any question, at info at safehouserehab.com. And we may use it on the air with your permission, of course, or visit us at safehouserehab.com. We want to help you make an informed decision for yourself and your loved one at this very important time in your family's life. So tune in next week for the next episode of Busting Addiction and the myths that travel with it, and we'll see you next time.